Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Gray Viking Games. Check them out at grayvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT10 for 10% off. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today we are going to talk about blue-white in Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. First, as always, I'd like to remind anyone who's interested in following along with the notes for this episode. They have been posted on patreon.com slash drafting archetypes and are available to anyone with limited guru or above uh, status on that patron or Patreon or whatever. Anyway, let's uh, jump into the archetype. So things to understand about Blue White. It had the uh, worst win rate in the format by a lot in the first few weeks of the format. It has since then eclipsed blue-red. Big props to blue-white, congratulations. Apparently the win rate improves when people uh, learn a little bit more about how to draft it. So things are looking up for this uh, maligned archetype. Really, the, the cards are not exceptional. Specifically, the biggest problem with the archetype is actually the uncommons. The best uncommon, the uncommon with the highest win rate in blue-white is Eccentric Apprentice, which is not impressive and only has a 0.2% higher win rate than Steadfast Paladin, uh, which is actually the common with the highest win rate in this archetype. So there's really not a single card at uncommon or common that would compel someone who is drafting cards that win exceptionally frequently to draft blue and white cards. That means that any time you're drafting blue-white, it should basically be because you have a rare or mythic. You know, I, I like to talk about like what the various paths into an archetype are, how you might end up here, which cards to prioritize. And the answer is there is literally nothing that you should first pick outside of rare or mythic that should tell you to draft blue-white. There are no cards that are exceptionally good in the archetype. There are no just generally strong cards in either color. It's it's really, really grim. The, the commons and uncommons are really just support cards. Now, the good news is, because no one has any reason to draft blue-white, uh, you can end up with multiple rares, and you can also build your deck around having multiple copies of certain commons and uncommons because there shouldn't be a lot of competition for them. That means that your deck should be pretty consistent. And if you've identified the cards that you like, you should be able to have a relatively high density of those cards. That's kind of like what's happening at a big picture here. And that's why it's not correct to draft blue white very frequently because like, again, there's no good card that you want to first pick to get into the archetype. So you should only do it, you know, it's not like blue-white's good enough that you should take like a Steadfast Paladin and then like a Sign of Stygia or like a Jin Winseer or something and just go. It, like this isn't some kind of like hidden gem where if you know how to do it right, you'll beat everyone or anything. It's just that there are commons that work, that like contribute to a game plan but it's still limited. You still want to take the, you know, the exceptionally good cards when you see them. And it's very rare that exceptionally good cards will be blue or white. But there are a bunch of good blue and white rares that can put you down this path. 
And so what'll happen is sometimes you'll take a rare that is blue or white, and then you'll kind of just like, presumably the most likely situation, I mean, it's possible that you just get passed back to back blue rare, blue rare, white rare, white rare, blue rare. But more likely what happens is you take a rare in one of those colors and you just like stay in that lane. Like you keep, you take a blue rare and then you keep taking blue cards or more likely you take a white rare and keep taking white cards. And then, you know, it's like pick seven and you see a Jin wins here and you're like, all right, well, I haven't found another second color. So I guess I'll take this and see what happens. Or, you know, it's like you go through pack one and you're like open-ended white X and then you like open or get past a blue rare pretty early in pack two and you decide to like switch in and commit or something. But in general, you're going to need like some kind of rare to put you in this space. And that's what's going on. I guess one thing that means is that there's really not a lot to focus on in terms of uncommons because there aren't very many that you even want to put in your deck consistently. And the best ones, like the, the ones with the highest turn rate are like Eccentric Apprentice, which is the 2-2 flyer that ventures. And then if you completed an engine, has some trinket text that nobody cares about. And White Dragon, which is fine. And then from there, it's like, you know, if you have a lot of venture stuff, like Cloister Gargoyle is good and stuff. But it, it, there's, there's nothing that you're excited about at Uncommon. So... Whatever, you might see some uncommons, they're fine support, you can put a Displacer Beast in your deck, whatever, it doesn't matter. What you want to understand is, you know, okay, which rares are good? Pretty straightforward, but there are certainly some exceptional rares to discuss. How to draft around the particular rares you have, and which commons to like look for, and which commons to avoid. So that's, that's really going to be the heart of what's worth talking about here. The most important point on commons to avoid is one that's probably going to be uh, predictable for regular listeners or especially uh, regular viewers of my stream, which is that I don't think that you should put Minimus Containment or Charmed Sleep in your deck. I'll say if you can avoid it, but what I really mean is basically ever. These are both among the more played cards in the archetype. But if you, as I like to do when doing the analysis for these things, sort uh, the 17 lands data by how frequently a card is drawn or appears in a deck or something, and then just like look down that uh, look down the cards sorted that way, but looking at the game in hand win rate column to find, you know, what you should see is like across a single rarity, the more played the more played a card is for the most part the higher its win rate will be because people try to play the good cards and avoid playing the bad cards and then what you'll notice is like blips in one direction or another where maybe a card's not very played but has a high win rate which would suggest either uh, in the case of like vampire spawn the community in general massively underestimates the card or in the case of price of loyalty, that it's only good under in certain circumstances. But what you'll also see sometimes is cards that are played a lot, despite the fact that their win rate is quite bad. You'll notice like a substantial drop between like the win rates of a card and the card that's like played just more frequently or something than it. And so one place where you see that is the drop off from you hear something on watch to uh, Minimus Containment. Uh, minimus Containment is, you know, the, there are no cards 
between them in terms of how frequently they're played. They're next to each other in the frequency of played sort, but you hear something on watch wins 5.5% more often than minimus containment. Minimus containment has like a 51.6% win rate, which is very much in really bad company. Uh, it's you know, a win rate that is comparable to a whole bunch of other cards I would really never consider playing. Charm Sleep is a little bit better at 52.4, but still pretty bad. The fact that these cards have a disproportionately bad win rate, that there's that big drop-off, is not why I'm telling you to avoid them. That's something that I found when I looked to verify that the stats back up my beliefs and experiences um, and expectations about the cards. The reason I said that people who are familiar with my content would know that this was where I was going is because I think that basically all uh, auras that attempt to function as removal spells in most formats are much worse than people think they are. Pacifism, like as an effect and as a like iconic card, has like a beloved history, like there's just this idea that in general, pacifism is the best, like the pacifism effect is like the go-to white removal spell in the format and that it is like the best white common or something. And I, I'm not quite at the point where I'm comfortable like going back to original Mirrodin and saying, well, like was arrest actually the best white common or not? I don't feel like I have, you know, a confident opinion one way or another about that. But I do think that for the past several years, those cards have been really, really overestimated. I think that that's a combination between their exploitability and um, the fact that they're sorcery speed removal spells. And then they also, it, you kind of hand wave the idea that this answers a creature when there are a lot of creatures that it just doesn't properly answer. Uh, creatures that have static abilities or whatever. I think that there's been a move in design to play more toward best of one in a way that involves creating more main deckable ways to answer artifacts and enchantments, which we see on stuff like the modal abilities of Dawnbringer Cleric and Baleful Beholder that give people main deck enchantment removal. And really, it's just like it doesn't take very much incidental main deck enchantment removal to really, really punish these cards that were kind of borderline anyway. And so anytime you're like playing this card that you're hoping will you know, function as a real removal spell, but there are cards that let you bounce the creature or kill the enchantment or sacrifice the creature for value or whatever, you're just giving yourself an opportunity to get blown out and you can just not do that. Instead, you can just play a card that like definitely works. All, all of this is to say, no, really stop putting Minimus Containment and Charm Sleep in your blue-white decks. And by the way, also when these same cards exist, in Midnight Hunt, maybe approach them with a healthy degree of skepticism. There are some decks that, you know, want these effects. I believe when I talked about blue-green, I mentioned that I would begrudgingly be willing to put Charm Sleep in some blue-green decks, but I don't think that blue-white is desperate enough that you should for that effect that it's worth playing. I think, you know, the easiest adjustment to make in evaluation of commons for most players drafting blue-white is simply to stop putting those cards in your deck. Next up, the one other card that stood out to me uh, in that same analysis that I talked about with Minimus Containment and Charm Sleep 
was Soul Knife Spy, and it shouldn't be too surprising that Soul Knife Spy isn't good in blue white because you don't have proactive removal, especially if you are correctly not playing Minimus Containment Charm Sleep, to force it through. So you can't go like Soul Knife Spy, Dragonfire, or Grim Bounty, or whatever your blocker hit you. You just go Soul Knife Spy, and then maybe you play like a Sign of Stygia, or you come to a river or something to push it through. But that's just not as good. So it's just less worth doing. You also don't have... Yeah, it's just... it's. The support isn't there for Soul Knife Spy. You should be doing other stuff. Just don't don't play Soul Knife Spy in play. Those are cards that you shouldn't play. There are a lot of other cards you shouldn't play just because there are a lot of blue and white cards that aren't very good. So let's focus on the commons that you should play instead. The top tier of commons are Steadfast Paladin, You Hear Something on Watch, Priest of Ancient Lore, Veteran Dungeoneer. That is like the, you know, A tier, like a... I don't want to use a letter grade because some people have specific ideas about how letter grades are supposed to be used. That is the top tier of commons where you basically want any number of them in any blue and white deck. I would make a small note there about you hear something on watch and suggest that I have had decks that are aggressive enough and not at a sufficient density of flyers such that I'm not excited about the card. If you're attempting to attack on the ground, you hear something on watch is not going to be very good in blue-white. You shouldn't often be attempting to attack on the ground in blue-white, but it is, you know, very much like its best mode is deal five damage to an attacker. So if you're not very concerned about your opponent attacking you, it's not a card that you're going to want in your deck very much. And so for like, in general, the more aggressive builds of blue-white would prefer something like a sign of Stygia, which is a card that wins a lot less and goes much later, rather than a you hear something on watch. Whereas every blue-white deck wants just as many Steadfast Paladins, Priest of Ancient Lores, and Veteran Dungeoneers as it can get. Like, I, I think that that's basically true with that exception. You're never going to cut one of those three cards from your deck. Then the next tier of cards is Aircult Elemental, Jin Windseer, and Planner Ally. Those are like the big flyers, and... I do think that you want the big flyers to be a pretty important part of your game plan. I think in general, the way that blue-white decks are winning when they are not winning with a busted rare is by winning with those uh, like hard-hitting flyers. Your like Steadfast Paladin, Priest of Ancient Lore, Veteran Dungeoneer stuff is like your early game to like not fall behind, maybe get ahead. And then that package of flyers is how you actually like close the game. And then the next card that I would note is Bar the Gate, which is an interesting card in the format. It's good. Andrew Cunio, respected friend of the stream, has uh, stated several times publicly that he believes it's just the best blue common. And I believe that he would say that this coverage is fairly disrespectful of uh, Bar the Gate. Although I will note that a vast majority of cards I've discussed, all but Jin Wins here and Air Cult Elemental, are white. But I do think that in blue-white, most of the time, Air Cult Elemental and Jin Wins here are better or more important than Bar the Gate. I think Bar the Gate has a role if you have a lot of two drops, ideally, especially Steadfast Paladins maybe with even one drops to support it, and then maybe some Sign of Stygias so you can play it at instant speed. 
Um, but in general, I think that to the extent that blue-white is a venture deck, which it is, like it has a lot of cards that venture, I don't think that it's a venture deck the way that the black decks are venture decks. Blue-black and white-black are venture decks that rely on venturing as an attrition tool and try to like generate value and grind out the game using venture. Whereas I think in blue-white, the venturing is secondary to just like a normal flyer aggro kind of game plan. And sometimes you'll do a lot of venturing just because you get cards at a good rate that incidentally venture. And it's nice to like turn on cloister gargoyle and stuff. But it's not an essential part of your game plan the way that it is in those black value decks. It can help you, like, you know, a little bit of scrying can help keep the pressure on uh, when you're, like, looking for another tempo card to finish the game out or something. But for the most part, like, you're just not trying to play a long enough game to get a lot of value out of venturing. That said, like, you know, if you venture three times and the end result is basically you put a plus one, plus one counter on a creature. The fact that that creature is a flyer means that, that plus one, plus one counter might be a big deal. And so like you do get sometimes an exceptional amount of value out of uh, your venturing, but it's really secondary. And I think that that's why Hama, the whatever its last name is, the uncommon blue white legend that has like a 44% game and hit win rate or something horrible like that. Maybe it's 48 and I'm confusing it with Blackstaff or something, but it's it's really, really bad. I think that part of why that card's win rate is so low is that it tricks people into thinking that their deck is supposed to be about venturing a lot and getting a lot more value out of it with Hama when that's not what you're trying to do with most blue-white decks. So given that venturing isn't as much of a priority, bar the gate isn't as much of a priority as it is in white and uh, blue-black. That's why I prefer the flyers to bar the gate, long story short. That top tier of cards, those are the cards that have the highest win rate. I'm in general trying to rely more on my experience than the stats for this episode because, because I've had much more success with this archetype than the stats indicate there generally is. So I'm more confident in suggesting taking an approach similar to what I've been doing. But for those commons, you know, at that point we have like pretty reasonable volume of data to suggest these are the ones that are performing better and you know it all makes sense those are just strong cards so the other uh commons that i think are noteworthy that have a lower less exceptional win rate i want to talk about arcane investigator rangers hawk and silver raven specifically as cards that i think are good role players and ways to fill out your curve that are noteworthy because they have a high opening hand win rate their win rate overall isn't great but I do think your opening hand is so important, just in general. I think that uh, it's good to take kind of a, I don't want to say an average because that's too precise a term, but to pay attention both to opening hand win rate and game and hand win rate and factor the opening hand win rate in to some extent. And so I think that uh, Arcane Investigator, Rangers, Hawk, and Silver Raven are cards that I basically want to put in my deck so that I can have good aggressive draws, good early game. I think that like starting with just a 1-1 flyer 
it hits your opponent for an appreciable amount of damage over the course of a game and makes it makes it easier to close a game out with Cyanus Digia or Ephemera Ripper or something. Ideally, I want my early game to just be a whole bunch of Steadfast Paladins, but Steadfast Paladin is a card that's great in every white archetype, so even though blue-white's not highly contested in general, that exact card is, and I, it's totally unacceptable if my curve in blue-white starts at three, so I need to find other one and two mana cards that I'm willing to put in my deck, and I think the best one and two mana card commons in blue-white when you're trying to attack your opponent are Ranger Sock, Silver Raven, and Arcane Investigator. Note, Arcane Investigator is beating out Dwarfhold Champion, even though Dwarfhold Champion has an extra power, which is to say that I do value Arcane Investigator's ability more than nothing, and I value the uh, Dwarfhold Champion's ability at pretty close to nothing, because most decks don't want to play very much equipment. You want, like, I would say maybe one piece of equipment in your blue and white decks, so it's rare that you're going to get better than a 3-1 out of your Dwarfhold Champion. That said, I do think Arcane Investigator and Dwarfhold Champion are very, very similar quality. If I can't find Arcane Investigator, I'm fine to play Dwarfhold Champion instead. If I already have two Arcane Investigators, I'd probably rather have a Dwarfhold Champion for the extra power rather than a third Arcane Investigator, because obviously the second Arcane Investigator is not giving you a lot of extra value. But I have found that, you know, sometimes these decks, like, you know, Air Cult Elemental is a card that's pretty good at just leading to a stalled game. And it is nice to have the mana sink for the, you know, 20% of your games or whatever that end up stalling out. The other commons that I want to mention as noteworthy in some way, this is basically commons that I want in some number in some portion of decks, but generally not commons that I want in all blue-white decks, are Potion of Healing, Celestial Unicorn, Dawnbringer Cleric, Delver's Torch, You Come to a River, Dwarfhold Champion, and Arborea Pegasus. Some of those, like Dwarfhold Champion and Arborea Pegasus, are mostly just like filler that's acceptable. If you just, you know, need another thing for your curve or need another flyer to finish a game or have like a bunch of creatures that are good to launch with the Pegasus or whatever. Some like Delver's Torch is just like, yeah, it's generally fine to play one of these. Same with Dawnbringer Cleric. Whereas like Potion of Healing and Celestial Unicorn are more like, well, Celestial Unicorn is, you know, did I get a bunch of Steadfast Paladins or Steadfast Paladins plus maybe some Potion of Healings or whatever? Um, and Potion of Healing is mostly, do I have a rare that uh, Potion of Healing interacts favorably with. Specifically, that means any of Teleportation Circle, Black Staff of Waterdeep, and Book of Exalted Deeds. I think those three are the cards that make me want to put Potion of Healing in a deck. If I don't have any of those, I'm probably looking to avoid Potion of Healing, unless maybe I have like multiple Cleric classes because I have a bunch of Steadfast Paladins or something. So this isn't meant to be like a completely exhaustive list of all commons I'm ever willing to play or something. But these are those are the commons that I think you should play most frequently and that you should be building your deck out of. I hope I didn't miss anything. I don't think I did. Given my process, it would be strange to me if there's something that I just forgot to consider. Um, if I haven't mentioned a common, it probably means that I would be disappointed to play it or would, would only be excited to play it in like under 20% of my blue eye decks or whatever. So that's the commons. Um, 
So now I mentioned, um, you know, a lot of the rares that are good are just obviously good. If you have something like Mind Flare or Nadar or Yanti Malison or uh, Imrith or whatever, whatever the legendary dragon is, those are great. And there are reasons to play the, these colors. There are some rares, really bad win rates, most notably the Black Staff of Waterdeep, that have played really, really, really well for me. The Black Staff of Waterdeep, I believe, has under a 45% win rate, even in blue-white on 17 lands. It's been fantastic. I've played it in two drafts that was maybe undefeated in both of them, or maybe I've taken like a loss or something with it, and I had the pleasure of drawing it very frequently. I would say I ran a little bit above expectation in terms of like drawing it a lot and also drawing it with other artifacts, possibly slightly, like at a slightly higher rate than the number I was playing indicated that I maybe should. But that's also kind of the nature of blue-white. You do have a good amount of uh, scrying and stuff because of venture, plus you can play like the uh, smith that helps you uh, dig to find your black staff, even when it fails to find it itself or find your other artifacts. And I think that the low win rate is likely because of people using it wrong. Uh, I've heard some theories that maybe people put it in decks that just don't have artifacts because they think that it can animate treasures. Maybe some people put a lot of equipment in their deck and struggle because they've just built bad decks. But I think that the cards you want to pair it with on um, Silver Raven and Potion of Healing above all else. You basically want like as many potions of healing and silver ravens as you can get if you have Flagstaff. And then, you know, maybe play like one, maybe even two pieces of equipment where you might not otherwise. Maybe put a secret door in your deck where you wouldn't have otherwise. It's very good with Cloister Gargoyle, you know, makes Cloister Gargoyle 4-4 flyer. And then if you've completed a dungeon, it becomes a 7-4 flyer. So that's another good one to uh, look out for. I do think it's pretty bad if you're not exactly blue-white, because I think that getting Potion of Healing specifically is really important because Potion of Healing goes late and is fantastic with Blackstaff. The fact that it only costs two mana and cantrips means that you can you know, attack with a 4-4 on turn three. And if they kill it, you're not down a card and you can have multiple potions. And so they like kill one and then you just play and animate another one. It's been really good. Monk class is another uh, rare that has really bad stats. And while I won a bunch with a deck that featured it with Blackstaff, I would say that Blackstaff was doing a lot of uh, heavy lifting while Monk class was more along for the road, for the ride. Monk class, in my experience, has felt fine rather than exceptional. And I would say, you know, it's probably not horrible, but it's you shouldn't first pick Monk class. It's not a reason to draft blue-white. One other rare that I want to note specifically is Hand of Vecna. And this one is based on the stats. So th those other cards... I was saying, you know, are, are noteworthy despite their stats or because my experience has been different than the stats. Hand of Vecna, I noticed because of its stats. Hand of Vecna is a card that hasn't impressed me in general and doesn't have great stats in that if you uh, were to pull up 17 lands right now and not apply any filters and just do a search 
for Hand of Vecna, I think you would see it at a 54.1% game in hand win rate, which is below average. It's a bad card, uh, and that's been my experience with it. I generally don't want to play it. If you filter for blue-white specifically, and you look for Hand of Vecna, you'll see that game in hand win rate goes up to 58.2%, which is impressive, not just because it's uh, gaining more than 4% win rate over itself, in the format at large when put in blue-white specifically, but you have to also remember that that's accounting for the fact that blue-white is winning like 3% less often to begin with. So it's managing to, so rather than going up 4%, like when you compare it to like the baseline of how bad the like other cards around it are, it's going up like 7%, which, you know, when you think about like all of the stuff that I've said about equipment, when talking about Kaldheim and um, just anything that pumps stats in general, that all of that is kind of like multiplied when it's paired with keywords. And then understanding, of course, that blue and white has the best keywords, which is to say the most access to flying and lifelink. It shouldn't be surprising that Hand of Vecna is a lot better. Like when you're putting Hand of Vecna on Steadfast Paladin, Ranger's Hawk, Silver Raven, Jin Windseer, any of these cards, it's going to do way, way, way better than if you're putting it on a creature without abilities. Hand of Vecna would be, you know, I, I think that you should view it as certainly a white rare and then specifically as being exceptionally good in blue-white. So the border of the card might tell you that it's colorless, but you should not draft it as if that is true. Much like Goldfane Pick for people who are familiar with Keldheim. As with any limited archetype, and I talk about this a lot, the more and better rares you have, the more likely it is that you can play a long game. The fewer and weaker rares you have, the more likely it is you need to play a short, aggressive game. It certainly holds true in blue-white. I have, you know, a trophy with a deck with Mind Flayer, Nadar, and Yanti Malison, so like three of the best rares that had three you hear something on watches and a lot of venturing and was definitely something I would consider a control deck. And then I've also had a deck where the only rare was Blackstaff of Waterdeep that was basically all commons, since the uncommons aren't good anyway, and was very, very aggressive, um, really leaning on Steadfast Paladin, Sign of Stygia, and Flyers, uh, plus Blackstaff of Waterdeep. And that deck even used a pair of You Come to a Rivers. And then the one thing that I've noticed that all of my successful blue eye decks have in common is that they all play Aerocult Elemental as their only card that costs six or more mana. Aerocult Elemental is, uh, you know, I don't want to play like as many as I can get. I want to play one or two, but I do think that you basically always want one or two of them in your blue eye decks. They, they've been there um, in decks that I've had success with, and they have felt like they're pulling their weight. The stuff that they do matters. It's a very flexible card, really good, uh, you know, regardless of the speed of your game plan, it uh, meaningfully contributes no matter what. Y you also want to prioritize like Gen Windseers and stuff like I talked about. Flyers are good, but Air Cult Elemental should be your late game. That covers uh, my lecture. So we're going to turn it over to Twitch chat for questions. So if you have any questions, anything I haven't covered, anything you want me to elaborate on, please write that now, regardless of whether you have already asked anything. And while I'm giving people a chance to do that, I do, as always, want to thank my newest patrons 
the week. So thank you to Carl and Luke. Really appreciate the support. Obviously, for anyone else who's enjoying the content and interested in supporting, please check out our page at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes and see if any of the tiers make sense for you. Also, incidentally, if you're interested in supporting the program, but Patreon isn't um, something that works for you or something you're interested in, obviously any amount of you know sharing episodes, linking friends, tweeting, or uh, leaving reviews, likes on YouTube, all that stuff really helps us out. And I'd appreciate any of that uh, additional support. As for questions, when I was wrapping up, there was a question about whether Aircult Elemental is better than Rhyme Shield Frost Giant. Yes, by a lot. The non-flyers are really about kind of establishing a board early, and then you kind of want to shift into the air to end the game. Veteran Dungeoneer is like a great rate, and that's what you want to play to like hold the ground. And then uh, you want your other expensive stuff to be like Jin Winseer, uh, Planner Ally, and Air Cult Elemental so that you can be uh, killing your opponent with those evasive creatures. Like Prime Shield Frost Giant just isn't good enough at attacking. Like the blue and white cards, just like if you play that against a green deck and then you're just like hanging out and like they're playing owl bears and you're playing rhyme shield frost giants like you can't attack them they can't attack you but they're drawing more cards than you are so you're probably not going to win that game that's my answer there next question i was curious about the role of some blue uncommons both in this archetype and the format in general sure let's do it uh blue dragon little expensive i think that this deck wants to be focusing on shorter games than blue dragon allows for i would basically always prefer air cult elemental and i always feel like i can get enough air cult elementals i think blue dragon is quite a bit better in like blue green where you have a little bit more card draw and you're playing a little bit of a longer game and you're just like happier with a more expensive higher impact card there whereas that's not what you're looking for in blue white uh eccentric apprentice i mentioned is the uncommon with the highest win rate really good to be able to like start your flying offense earlier and there just aren't other cheap flyers with you know two or more power so that's what we have and the value makes it okay uh displacer beast yeah solid value card you know very much like in line with veteran dungeoneer in terms of power level definitely a card i'm like happy to play that's my answer to all of those um i'm gonna add one to your list that i didn't talk about in this archetype but i think is worth mentioning which is wizard class wizard class is a card that has like pretty bad stats but i think it's acceptable in some blue white decks because you can keep your curve very low and when you do that, it's nice to have like the mana sync and blue light's pretty good at like being ahead, which can give you time to use it. And most importantly, same situation as with equipment, the plus one plus one counters that you're getting off wizard class eventually simply have more value when they're paired with white creatures. And so that makes like wizard class a little bit better as far as it being like finisher of sorts. I think it's, you know, like serviceable in blue white. Next question is the birthing pod bear, whose name I'm forgetting, but I know what you're talking about. It starts with an O. Oswald? Uh, yeah, Oswald Fiddlebender. Is that worth playing in more artifact having blue white ducks? Absolutely. I mean, a 2-2 two, two for 2 is a fine baseline. Like you're looking for more 2 drops and, you know, arcane investigator is the bar to beat or whatever. And you can venture, like you're almost always going to be able to venture twice, which gives you a treasure. 
And so if you can upgrade your treasure into a playable artifact, that's great. Now, the trick is finding a playable one-man artifact, which, you know, if you have Blackstaff, you're golden. That guy and Blackstaff together are awesome. If you don't have Blackstaff, now you're looking at, like, Silver Raven or a piece of equipment. All of your options there are bad. Or Secret Door. And, like, Silver Raven and Secret Door are playable if you have Blackstaff, but they're not great otherwise. Uh, Portable Hole is a very good option to uh, play Fiddlebender if you don't have Blackstaff. When you can't upgrade your treasures into something, or you have to play a bad card to be able to upgrade your treasures into something, drops off a little bit. Now, if you have a Fiddlebender, I'm certainly like, it's not the end of the world to put a Silver Raven in your deck, and being able to turn a treasure into a Silver Raven is pretty good. So I, I do think like, you know, it's fine to just like play Fiddlebender and a Silver Raven, two Silver Ravens and a blue-white deck that's good at venturing. I don't, I think that, you know, it's fine there. Where it's good is if you have Blackstaff specifically. And then the other thing that it can do well is work with Potion of Healing and turn that into a three-man artifact, which at that point we're probably talking about specifically at Uncommon, Cloyster Gargoyle, or uh, Plate Mail, but you might have a rare, you might be able to get Hand of Vecna or Book of Exalted Deeds. If you have like Book of Exalted Deeds, then you naturally want to play as many Potion of Healings as you can get. And if you're the Book of Exalted Deeds Potion of Healing deck, you can use Oswald to find your Book of Exalted Deeds. For Oswald to be really exceptional, you're going to want to be comboing it with other rares, but it can do some stuff to be just like a serviceable two-drop at common and uncommon. What this means is don't take Oswald very highly in general, but it's a playable card. And if you already have a Blackstaff, then snap that guy up. Next question, does Split the Party fit in Tempo Blue-White? So I talked about Split the Party in Blue-Green, where I mentioned that it's exceptional. I think that it is not good in blue-white because you shouldn't need it to get through and you're not going to have a lot of board stalls because you have more, like you have other tempo elements and more importantly, you have a lot more evasion and you should be relying on your evasion to end games where you're not getting into the like, oh, we've just sat and stared at each other and built up our board for the last three or four turns. Now I can play split the party and kill you. Because you should generally be able to be actively pressuring your opponent instead, uh, the ceiling is much lower and the floor is lower, and you, the card is just like not strong in general, so I would recommend avoiding it in blue-white. There is a note that Split the Party gets better the more uh, Charm Sleeps and Minimus Containments you have, which is true. If your opponent has creatures that have Charm Sleep and Minimus Containment, you potentially get to bounce all of their creatures that aren't locked down while letting them keep those. But at that point, we are talking about throwing good money after bad, kind of, by just putting a bunch of bad cards in our deck to make them work together. Obviously, you know, sometimes cards are better than some of their parts. Uh, there are, you know, like, if a card is generally not good, you can combine it with other cards that aren't good and get something really good. Uh, we see that a lot in, you know, constructed combo decks or something. I personally don't think that inter interaction is strong enough that I would be inclined to go down that path, but there is some synergy there. Next question, what's the best way to use Bar the Gate and get the most out of it? 
uh, probably pairing it with a different color and really uh, playing a long game that's doing a lot of venturing. I think it's really good in blue-black. But uh, in general, the, the real answer to your question is uh, pairing it with a lot of two drops so that you can be ahead or not behind on board while leaving mana up for it as early as possible. And then also pairing it with Sign of Stygia and other instants so that you can spend your mana profitably when uh, your opponent doesn't run into it. Next question. Assuming no artifact synergies, how high should I value portable hull? It's fine. Um, I like it more in like more controlling decks that like when you are trying to play an attrition game and when you have expensive stuff that you're trying to stay alive for, cheap removal of small creatures is really good at keeping you alive. Um, when you are trying to attack your opponent, you're less concerned with their small creatures that you can potentially ignore and more concerned with their big creatures that are going to line up profitably against your creatures. If you're attacking your opponent in the air, none of their creatures are going to line up well against your creatures. None of the creatures that Portable Hole can affect are going to line up well against your creatures. So you're using Portable Hole to do something that's not very important to your deck. You're using it to stay alive rather than to help kill them. So it's a somewhat strong card, but I think that you shouldn't be valuing it highly in aggressive blue-white decks. If you have like a lot of you know good rares and you're playing the like you hear something on watch venture rares decks, then I could be a little bit more into it. Or if you have like you know a good amount of like powerful evasive creatures like Jin Windseers and stuff, but you're worried about getting run over by like hobgoblins because you don't have enough like steadfast paladins and sign of stygias, then you can use it as kind of like a substitute early blocker. But you should acknowledge that when you're doing that, it's functioning pretty similarly to a secret door, which is just not a high priority card. And so like, you know, obviously to prioritize a portable hole, you need it to be better than secret door. And if it's just blocking a hobgoblin so that you're not dying while you get to your more expensive stuff and it's not like meaningfully helping your ability to attack them, then, you know, what are, what are you doing here? All right. It looks like the mob has been sated and the questions people have have been covered. If you are uh, listening to a recording of this and you have a question that wasn't asked, take that as inspiration to try to tune in live sometime so that you can ask uh, those questions. And um, if it's a really important question to you, feel free to tweet at me and um, we can take the discussion there. Obviously, if you don't know, uh, at Samuel H. Black on Twitter. Thanks everyone for tuning in. I believe next week I will be covering Red White, the last remaining archetype in uh, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. Last and certainly, maybe not least, but in the in the bottom in terms of how interesting it is to me, but hopefully we'll, I'm sure we'll find some interesting things to discuss. And then after that, I'm looking forward to moving on to uh, Midnight Hell. So see everyone next time. Bye. Speed.